0: This morning, we're going to spend a lion's share of our time uh, for the first section in the book of Exodus, but we're going to begin in the book of John, Gospel of John. Looking this morning at the idea that when Jesus comes, one of the descriptors we see of him is that he's coming as a lamb. Now, As you think about all the different titles of Jesus and the ways that we're going to break this out, over the course of our Advent series, this week we're going to look at Jesus, the coming Lamb. We're going to look at the idea of wisdom, which is kind of found and captivated within the book of Proverbs. Uh, Jesus, the coming King. And so there's this conception within the Old Testament of the kind of King that he's going to be. And we're going to see how that uh, is met out, how that plays out within the confines of the New Testament and then we're going to spend our last time together really looking at the peace that this king brings to us. And we're going to do that on Christmas morning. But today we have an opportunity to look at this, uh, this facet of Jesus' ministry that is one of these things that many of us know, but it's, it's one of those things we kind of notionally know it, right? Kind of like our wife's birthdays. We know that she has a birthday, we're just not sure when it is sometimes. And so, come on now. I feel judged. And, and know that I'm judging you for your judgment. But this idea of Jesus is the Lamb, it's, it's this thing we've heard, we've sung about, but it's nothing uh, that for, for very many of us that we've spent any length of time exploring, really delving into. But what I want you to observe here is that after you make it through John's kind of prologue, he, he begins to describe the ministry of John the Baptist. And so verse 19, it says, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, and so they began to pepper John the Baptist all these questions about who are you, where'd you come from, what are you here to do? Listen to it. He says, he confessed, he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you a prophet? He said, no. So they said to him, who are you? He said, we need to give an answer to those on whose account we were sent. What do you say of yourself? So this is John the Baptist's response. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. So he's quoting Isaiah. So John the Baptist sees his role primarily of one as this precursor, one who is, who is setting a foundation, preparing hearts. He is, is sovereignly set not to be the guy, but he is preparing the way for the coming Messiah. Now, according to John's chronology, according to kind of the list and the ways that he writes things, and, and so it's different than the other Gospels uh, in priority, but look what he has next. And so he's preparing the way. Verse 29, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. Critically important. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's described himself in terms of of being this forerunner. He's described himself in his ministry as being one of of preparatory. And then Jesus comes. Jesus is walking towards him, and he describes him in this way Behold, here comes the Lamb of God. Everybody say, Lamb of God. Lamb of God. He says, here comes the Lamb of God. And so he's painting in their minds a context. He's asking them to draw from the data banks of when they were raised and the stories they've heard and and all the lineage of all the things indoctrinated into them for over a thousand years. And so when he sees Jesus and he calls him the Lamb of God, it should have been triggering in their minds there is something distinct and different about Jesus. But look what he connects it with. This one who's coming is coming to take away the sin of the world. An amazing thing about how John renders this in the Greek is he gives us this picture that it's not just this, this, this kind of moving through, and he takes all the sin, but he is aggressively, continually moving in our lives, stripping us of sin. So even after you are saved and you've submitted your heart to Jesus and he's once and for all put sin to death in your life, we find sin still encroaching. We hold bitterness. We have animosity. We lust. We're greedy. We're prideful. Some of us are so captivated with being good, of doing the right thing, of letting those around us see us doing the right thing that this becomes for us a God, that this becomes for us our primary directive. But what we see of this wonderful picture of Jesus is that he is taking that sin out, and he's taking that sin out, and he's taking that sin out over and over and over again. This morning I tell you that Jesus in the coming of the Lamb comes into your heart and moves each and every day. His desire is to hold more and more of your heart not that it's just some decision that you made years ago, decades ago, and it's altered your destiny but has not impacted the way that you live each and every moment. Jesus captivates your heart in a moment, and he owns your heart increasingly each and every day. This idea, this aspect of Jesus coming as the Lamb of God is something that we have to go back and look at the Old Testament to really understand. Now, the idea of, of sacrifice or blood atoning for sins is something you can go all the way back to the garden. So we see Adam and Eve in the garden, they sin, they fall. And what happens? God kills an animal to clothe their nakedness. So we see that that blood, in some sense, is necessary for the atonement of sin. Now the next clear place that we begin to see this is in the book of Exodus. And so if you're in the book of Exodus, what we begin to see, starting in chapter 7, is this list of nine various plagues. And so the Israelites had been held in captivity in Israel... We know in total that the time they lived in Israel, at the time they lived in Egypt, is 430 years, and God sends Moses, He sends Aaron along with him to communicate to Pharaoh that Pharaoh needs to let his people go, let God's people go. And so Pharaoh, being this, this intransigent ruler, this hard-hearted man, this man who is worshiping himself, who wants to be worshipped, who's worshiping the pantheon of gods around him, what does he say? He says simply, no. Can you imagine having an incredible slave labor force of over 600,000 men and someone coming to you and say, Doug, I know you have an incredible labor force, but I want to take them all away from you to go out into to worship. Your immediate response would be to say, no. Everybody say, no. No. And so Pharaoh engages with this, and he says no. And so God instructs Moses, he instructs Aaron to move through this process of various plagues to bring them upon Pharaoh to force God's name to be recognized as great and to force an example and a driving force from his people from Egypt to the promised land. So God systematically moves through, and as some have argued, he is systematically dismantling the entire Egyptian system of divinity. So with each one of these plagues is brought an onslaught into some various god worshipped by the Egyptians. So the first plague he goes after is to turn the Nile to blood, as so we see that in chapter 7. Then he sends a mass of frogs, which my kids would be delighted for. My kids find frogs when frogs shouldn't be there anymore. But he sends frogs everywhere. He sends gnats. He sends flies. He brings a plague on their livestock. He sends boils. They have heaping boils all over their bodies. He sends fire and hail from heaven. He sends locusts to devour everything that's left. Then he sends night. Since darkness And for three days, there's no light. And the amazing thing about this is that there's this line of demarcation. You have where the Israelites dwell, and it is light. It is God's blessing. You have where the Egyptians dwell, and it is darkness, and it is judgment. But still, they're not released. Still, Pharaoh's heart is not moved, and so God begins to tell Moses in chapter 11 of one more plague that will come their way. He said, I'm going to bring this plague and then he's going to drive you away completely. And so he begins to describe this plague to him. And he begins to describe how this is going to work in verse 4 of chapter 11. It says, So Moses said, Thus says the Lord about midnight, I will go in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. It says, There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will there ever be again. But again, we see that God draws a line, this line of demarcation, this line of separation, where he separates what he will do among the Egyptians from what he will do among the Israelites. And so the question rolls in our mind, why, how? On what basis is he separating these two people? How, how does God, to be aware of how these things are to be met out? how should these things go? So God tells them, starting in chapter 12, he tells them that they are to go out and, and they are to gather a lamb on the tenth day of the month, and each man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. A lamb for a household. Look at verse 4. And if a household is too small for a lamb, then he shall go to his nearest neighbor and shall take according to the numbers of the people, according to what each can eat, you shall make the count for the lamb. Verse 5, he begins to describe this lamb. And look at the careful language that Moses uses. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old. You'll take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it to the 14th day of the month, and when the whole assembly of the congregation is gathered together, you shall kill the lambs at twilight. You've got to take the lambs. You have to take just enough for them to eat, not so much to be full. He's not describing it in terms of this scrumptious meal. He's not describing it in terms of you're going to eat until you've had your full. He's describing it in terms of necessity. But look what he says in verse 7. He says, Then you shall take some of the blood some of the blood of the lamb, and you put it on the two doorposts on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. This is incredibly important. They take the blood of the lamb, they take some hyssop, and they, they dip into the basin where the blood is caught, and they bring it out, and they're, they're drawing in the doorposts across the top, and they're marking down, and they are marking each and every one of their residents in accordance with what God has described to them. Verse 8 says, They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. He goes on, he says, Don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted with its head and its legs and its inner parts. You shall not let any remain until morning, and anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In essence, he's describing this meal not in terms of what is the most elegant on the palate, But what demonstrates the most haste? So they're not boiling it. They're not waiting for water to get hot. They're not seasoning it, turning it on a spit. They are putting it over fire and eating it. Everything they can't eat gets burned. Nobody's walking over and saying, oh, Gladys, I got some lovely Tupperware. Just put the leftover lamb in there and we'll have enough for a week. Nobody's saying that. Number one, Tupperware didn't exist. Number two, there's an indication in there that this haste, was indicative of the speed of God's movement. Look how he continues to describe it in verse 11. He said, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. I remember one of the complaints my dad had when I was growing up. He would always turn to my brother and I and say, boys, are we in a race? My brother and I are just shoveling food as fast as we can. If I'd have known this passage was here I said absolutely dad we're eating in haste (laughs) what he gives them is this amazing picture that that even this staff in hand he is demonstrating or he's communicating to them of the haste of his movement and what they're demonstrating to him is the faith they have in his soon incoming movement 430 years 430 years they've been in Egypt, mostly under oppressive captivity, mostly as slaves. Imagine 430 years of thinking it's going to get better and it doesn't. 430 years of thinking we're going to move and it doesn't. And now they've had nine plagues. You can imagine each one of these move and, and the thought that's keying in their mind is surely now he will send us out. Surely now, I mean, now that, that fire fell from heaven, he'll send us out. And what happens? Nothing. Darkness. All on the Egyptian side, light on their side. Surely he'll send us out. And he does it. Nine times they've seen the tremendous power of God. And nine times they've seen the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. God's communication to them is to be ready, is to not doubt. I'm preparing to move in haste. They have their belts on, they have their sandals on, they have their staff at the ready. Look what he says. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn of the land, both the man and the beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood, verse 13, shall be a sign for you, and on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no judgment will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God recognizes the severity of his judgment brought upon the Egyptians. And he also recognizes the importance for the Israelites to remember. And so verse 14, he tells them that this is to be to you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all the generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast verse 24 he says you shall observe this rite as a statues, a statute for you and your sons forever and when you come into the land the lord will give you as he has promised you shall keep this service and when your children say to you what do you mean by this service you shall say it is a sacrifice of the lord's passover for he passed over the houses of israel in egypt and he struck the egyptians but he spared our houses and all the people bowed their head and worshiped in verse 25 we read that the lord does come over he comes over in every house In Egypt cries out. The text tells us that there's not a single household in all the land of Egypt that is spared. And this great cry comes out. And what we read is that that Pharaoh summons them and he sends them out. He says, up, go from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord your God and take your flocks and your herds, as you have said. Finally, the Lord's judgment has forced the hand of Pharaoh to eject the Israelites out of his land. For 430 years, they were under the yoke of slavery. And in one night, God broke the yoke. Listen to that. For 430 years, they dwelt under the yoke of slavery. And in one night God broke that yoke definitively. Each of us over the course of our lives have dwelled under the yoke of slavery. Not enslaved to Egypt, not enslaved to your boss, but you, like me, were a slave to sin. And each of us has an opportunity to have that yoke of slavery broken, finally, decisively, in a moment. The Apostle Paul writes it this way in Romans 6. He says, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. And the fruit that you produce leads to sanctification at its end, eternal life. And he says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What we celebrate in the Lord's Supper in looking at his body is recognizing that in Jesus submitting himself and giving his body for us is the breaking of the yoke of sin in our lives. We were all enslaved to sin, but in Jesus, God gives us an opportunity to submit ourselves to Him and to give ourselves to righteousness. So this morning, what we have an opportunity to do in the first of these elements is to thank God. So we look back at the sacrifice that he made. Our declaration is one of thanks. It's one of thanksgiving, is one of rejoicing, recognizing the definitive movement of God in destroying the stronghold of sin in our lives. I pray that as we pass it out, that you would take time to reflect on God's goodness to you, on the sweet nature of our God, that he would offer to you the ability to walk up out of sin, to receive forgiveness of sins. Behold, the Lamb of God has come, the one who's taking away the sin of the world. Let me ask the deacons to stand. As you receive the first of the two elements, if you would take and hold, and then we will all eat together. Reading in the Gospel of Matthew, in the 26th verse the, out of the 26th chapter, the Gospel author says, Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and, after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Moving out of the book of Exodus, we recognize that over and again the Israelites are celebrating the Passover. We see it reinstituted. Yeah, in the book of Numbers, this description that it's always to be before them, it's always to be done in a certain way, it's always to be observed, and so it's always training their minds in this sense of expectation of what is to come. Now look at this. Isaiah, hundreds of years later, writes these words. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 6 and 7. He turns to us, he turns to his, his uh, readership, those who had received this prophecy, and he writes these words, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Isaiah could be writing about our day, he could be writing about any day. And so what he does is he looks at each and every one of us, he looks at our hearts, and he says, this is how we have been. We set our hearts on something, we set our minds on something, and we just, we go for it. I mean, we are just dogged in our pursuit of whatever we set our minds on. We're dogged in our pursuit of it. And he says that every one of us, each and every person, so Justin, me, Ben, Barry, Jason, David, all of us, all of us have set our hearts on something. Isaiah summarily describes it as being his own way. Some of us, is goodness. I mean, you are the best, most amazing person in Greenville. If we were to take a poll, you would win model citizen hands down, just like a show of hands. Who thinks this person is a good person? Your neighbors think so. Your grand thinks so. Everybody thinks that you're a great person. Pursue goodness, you pursue excellence. We see vices on the other side. Some of us are so enslaved to drugs, to alcohol, to pornography, to any other thing we might set our hearts on Outside of setting them on God. This is what Isaiah is describing. He said, This is the universal human condition. We've all, like sheep, gone astray. And this unexpected thing happens. And he says, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All the the bad stuff that should come your way for your selfish attitudes, all the bad stuff that should come my way because of my selfish attitudes, be it pride, be it arrogance, be it indifference. All of that stuff gets laid, and the text says, on him. Look what he picks up in verse 7. This one who would receive all our iniquity. He says, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And then he turns and he says, like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is taken before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You see, in John 1, when we pick up, John has this rather... Curious way of describing Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world. He is borrowing from Exodus. He is borrowing from Isaiah. He sees Jesus not as this kingly one who would come in and overthrow the Roman government and usher in this, this Davidic kingdom in their own minds, They would have Roman servants. They would send the Romans packing. But in this description of Jesus as the Lamb of God, we begin to see it's already being met out in the gospel author's mind that Jesus would lead a decidedly different type of engagement than they had ever said in their minds before. And so to see this isn't to behold Jesus, this innocent babe that we see there, and, and, and to think of our sin resting on this innocent child's shoulders is bewildering. It's overwhelming. So clothed in humanity, this, this perfect bundle of, of divinity and humanity contained within inside eight or so pounds, Jesus comes innocent into the world. In innocent, over 30 years he remained, teaching, instructing, ministering, pouring out his life, living his life as an example, and giving his life as a pointer to the Father, whereby we might receive the forgiveness of sins. But you see, Jesus, this Mild, Jesus, this well mannered lamb. We don't fully see it. We don't fully recognize it until he comes to the point of his death. So in John chapter 19, we see Jesus, the innocent, Jesus, the teacher, Jesus, the meek and mild, Jesus, the lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world before the highest court of his surrounding day. And he's beaten. He's mocked. He's beaten so severely that he's almost unrecognizable. Flesh torn from his body. Fluid filling up his body's cavities. Beat him in the face. They beat him in his body. They take a crown of thorns. They twist it together. They shove it on his head. Blood pouring down his face. They mockingly cry out To him that he is the king. Verse 3 of chapter 9, they say, Hail to the King of the Jews, and they strike him again with their hands. So Pilate trots him out. He calls to the Jews and he says, Would you have me release him? And what do they say? They say, Crucify him. Their desire is to see Jesus crucified. Their desire is to see Jesus punished. Their desire is to see Jesus in pain. So Jesus, worn down and exhausted from beatings, worn down and exhausted from accusations, is, is labored, is carrying his cross out, and, and then we see that, that one comes to help him carry it. So then they take Jesus and they take him to the point of the cross. And and we know this from from other examples we found in archaeology that what they likely did was turn his feet to the side like this and and turn his body straight like this, and they would drive a nail straight through. And they would tie a rope around his body to keep him from leaning forward, and, and he would hang there. The Son of God. Nailed to a cross. Jesus, the Lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world. See, the amazing thing is that Jesus, in being the Lamb of God, doesn't seek to engage in in, in polite debate to take away the sin of the world. It's not a monetary exchange to take away the sin of the world. What he does is in this incredibly bold and powerful submission, submitting himself to the point of death. And as Paul writes in Philippians 2, even death on a cross. We see this Jesus up on the cross. And this amazing thing happened. This lamb who is bleeding out, this lamb who is suffering for you and for me. In verse 31 of chapter 19, it says, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jewish, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they may be taken away. So you've got these three people on the cross, you've got a robber on the left, Jesus in the middle, and a robber on the right. And so the Jews go to Pilate and say, look, we can't have them on there we need them to come down. And so they enter into this process that is, is kind of normal for that day. And so what they do is they take a large iron mallet and they go in and they slam it into the legs. And what we see, according to archaeological evidence, they dug up a guy. In one of his legs, there were no bones remaining. It's not just if I were to go to Justin and say, okay, some eat large hammer, bam. And then hit his leg once and say, okay, his right leg is gone. He has no knee. He can no longer stand. In this one instant, they beat the leg so severely that no solid bones remain. Then they go to the other leg and they just simply break. So they start on either side of Jesus and they break his legs. And they start on the other side of Jesus and they break his legs. And then they come back to Jesus in the middle. And what has happened? He's already dead the text tells us that jesus had given up his spirit so maybe you read that and you think and that's curious did they overwhelm jesus did they get him to the point where he just couldn't take it anymore was it too much for him Verse 32 says, The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers comes in, he pierces his side with a spear. And at once blood and water poured out. And look in verse 36. For these things took place that Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones should be broken. It's the thing that we didn't get to in Exodus. You get into Exodus 12 46, and one of the things we're told about this Passover lamb is that not a single bone in the lamb that they're about to eat may be broken. This is the links that our God goes to to, one, uphold his word, and two, to bring salvation to your heart that even in death, Jesus still fulfills Scripture. A single bone of his is broken. Even in death, Jesus is still fulfilling scripture. Peter writes of Jesus this way, and he wants us to understand the, the depths that God went to to redeem us. So he writes to his audience, and in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, Knowing this, that you were ransomed from your futile ways. Inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish, without spot. In worshiping Jesus, in taking the Lord's Supper, we worship a lamb without blemish, without spot. And his precious blood atones. It is the precious blood of Jesus poured out which provides for us salvation. It is our faith assent to God, believing what he has said to be true, believing that what he has said will come true. And what we do in taking the Lord's Supper is honoring his sacrifice, remembering it still, being thankful in the midst of it, and looking forward to his return. Amen? Amen. Amen. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together in the second of the two elements, let us once again turn our hearts towards thankfulness and the remembrance of the blood and water which was poured out. Not one of his bones was broken. The depths of our great God's love for you is perfectly demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me ask the deacons to stand and once again that you would take and hold until we've all been served and we'll take together. Reading again from the 26th chapter of Matthew. says, And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, until that day I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Let me invite you to stand as we enter into a time of application and reflection. Let us unite our hearts in song as we worship together. And as the Lord moves... And maybe you need to turn to your spouse and pray. Maybe you need to turn to a friend and pray. Or come pray with one of these deacons at the front. Man, they would love to pray with you. But let us be a people who respond to the word of God as it goes out. And in whatever way He's speaking to you, let us respond now.